Hello, welcome to Behind the Scenes with me, Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which people working in entertainment, behind the cameras, kindly share with us their never-before-heard anecdotes and stories. These are voices you don't often hear. I also chat with performers and actors to get a glimpse behind the glamour, the business behind the show. If you enjoy our podcast and like to consider becoming a Patreon member and support the podcast further, please check out the Patreon link below. Also, if you're interested in any of my steampunk murder mystery novels, then please go to steamsmokeandmirrors.com. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Cue the music, Marky. In mid-November of 2020, we lost one of the most popular, versatile and talented entertainers the UK has ever produced, Des O'Connor. Des was one of the biggest names in show business right back from the 1950s. And with his variety and quiz series and ratings topping chat shows, he was a permanent face on British television screens for more than 50 years. In fact, I don't remember a time in my life when Des O'Connor wasn't famous. He even made more than 1,000 solo performances at the London Palladium. That's how big Des was. I was lucky enough to be involved in a couple of Royal Variety performances Des hosted, working along with his longtime collaborator and one of my mentors, the legendary writer Neil Shand. After that, there were some TV specials working with Des, then a four-year run on the lunchtime entertainment hit, Today with Des and Mel. So I got to spend a great deal of time in the company of this remarkable entertainer. But no one knew the real Des O'Connor better than our behind-the-scenes guest this time. He was Des's personal assistant and driver for more than 12 years and remained a close personal friend after that. So to mark the anniversary of Des's departing the stage... He's agreed to share some of his Des O'Connor memories with us now. So please welcome Mr. Nick Fox. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Colin. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Not seen you for a long time, so it's great to have a catch-up. I feel very honoured today to be able to share my time with Des on this stage that you have shared with so many legends of the industry. So thank you, first and foremost. Oh, God, my absolute joy to do that. As I say, this is this is pure behind the scenes stuff. This is what behind the scenes this podcast is all about. Because you spent such a long time with Des, and you were very, and you were right into the end, very very close. So let's start by you describing the impact that Des O'Connor had on your particular life. Well, the list is endless, to be honest with you. Um... But when you look at how he conducted himself on a daily basis, he was always positive and happy. He rarely moaned about anything, unless we was in the car. <laughs> and other, other drivers were the only thing that really got under his skin. I can't repeat on air what he said, obviously, but, you know, man to man, you can probably understand where I'm going to go. So, <laughs> you know, he was very professional and he always gave 100%, even after a show. 
He would always find time for fans, sign autographs for them. You know, if it was raining, he'd invite them in under the cover in the stage door, which always caused a stir because you know what security is like at theatres and places like that. This is like inviting 25, 30 people inside and and they're having fits because they can't see where everybody's going. So, you know, he just always took other people's feelings and considerations into everything he's done. He really was one of the nicest persons I've ever met in my life. Mm, yeah, his spirit was enormously generous, wasn't it? Um, yeah. When you started with Des, you had no long-term or, or indeed short-term show business experience. So how did you land the job working for Des O'Connor, one of the most famous <laughs> stars in the country? Well, I always said, when anybody asked me, I was in the right place at the right time. And I had came from a transport background originally, um, driving trucks. Then I decided to have a change and go and do something else. I had a young family. I wanted to be at home more with them. Um, so I took a job working for a private hire company based in Chalfont St. Peter, mm-hmm. um, which is not far from where you were. Mm-hmm. And this was one of their clients. And I remember getting a phone call from the boss one day saying to me that he had a VIP job on a Saturday night. And whenever he said the word VIP, you knew it was a stitch up mm-hmm. and nobody else ever wanted to do them and because I was like the new boy on the block I kind of got sucked in by it so I said look I can't work Saturday I said I'm out I said I've got a party to go to it's my nan's 80th birthday and everybody's got to be there Um, and he went look I really need you I'm not joking he said I've got a VIP job I said who is it he said it's Des O'Connor well of course I laughed at first and because it just brought back memories of the more wise, you know, the the adverts on TV where the speaker was thrown in the water and the fish jump out and, yeah. you know, with Russ Abbott and all that. And, and I thought, really? So anyway, I agreed to do it after a little bit of banter. It cost him a bit more money on the job than, than what I was going to get anyway. Mm. And uh, so off I went over to his house on the, on the Saturday and knocked on the door and Voice come through the buzzer. Hello, I said. Uh, oh, hi, Des. It's uh, Nick from Graham. Oh, hi, Nick. Come in. And the gates opened. As I drove through, I expected to see this, you know, big, massive, posh house, Rolls Royce on the drive. But it wasn't. It was completely different. He had a lovely looking, Grade Two listed old mill house with, I wouldn't say a lake on the side, not really a pond, like a large piece of water. Mm. And as I went round the back, there's like a modern extension on the back a gym you know room upstairs double garage doors and i'm like oh this is quite nice looked across over to the swimming pool and then the garden went up and disappeared at the back trees just over over towering everything it it was lovely so i'm stood there and then all of a sudden the door opened behind me and i've heard this voice hi nick and i've looked around and, and it's des and i was probably for the first time in my life I was starstruck. Mm. I was like, here I am, a young lad from Highwickham, and I'm stood on the driveway of one of the biggest stars in the country, House. Mm. And he walked up to me, shook my hand, and from that moment, I was completely relaxed. And it just felt like it was meant to be. So I stood there, I've opened the car door, he's come out and he's got in and he said, do you know where we're going? I said, no, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. So he said, we're off to Claridge's. 
I had no idea where that was. So <laughs> I said, give us a little pointer, can you, when we get a bit closer? So he said, yeah, no worries. Now, he knew London like the back of his hand, lived there as a child, worked there for the majority of his working life. So he knew every little nook and cranny, and he took me down streets that I didn't even know existed. And within minutes, we were at Claridge's. So I dropped him off and I thought, right, mission now, Nan's party, got to go. So I went to my Nan's party, was there for the pictures, smiled, said hello to everyone, back to London, sat outside Claridge's and he came out about half past 12. And as he came out, he had a, a little blonde lady on his arm. And I thought, who's that? Because when I dropped him off, he was on his own. <laughs> so as he's turned around, and come walking towards me. He's got Barbara Windsor on his arm. I don't just I speak to myself. Is, is this real? Is it like is it, somebody's going to wake me up? And anyway? I expected Jeremy Beadle to jump out and start laughing at me. And you know, it, it, it just went on from there. And every time I'd done something with him, it, I just had to keep pinching myself. So anyway, got in the car. He apologised for coming out late. It was about ten minutes late. So. so we got in the car and we're driving home and he said, oh, hoping, hope he even wasn't too boring. So I told him exactly what I'd done. And he said to me, he said, you done what? I said, yeah. I said, I had to go to my nan's 80th birthday. And he went, blimey. I said, yeah. I said, we weren't too worried about my nan. I said, it was my mum I was more worried about. I said, because when mum says you have to do something, you've got to do it. And he was like, excellent. Put his hand on my shoulder and said, your nan would be really proud of you. And, and that was it. Took him back home. Pulled up on the drive, dropped him off, and away we went. And it was just surreal. And as I left the house, I thought, what a night. And that moment will stick with me forever, you know? So about two weeks, three weeks later, I got a phone call again from my boss. And he said to me, he said, I've got a VIP job for you. And I said, no, not no, I'm not doing this one. And he went, You have to. This is asked for you personally. And I said, Oh, right, okay. I said, I'll do this one, but somebody else is going to do the next one. So he said, Okay, fantastic. So anyway, turned up at Des's house, pressed the buzzer again, introduced myself, the gates opened, in I went, called around the back, stood on the driveway, door opened. This time it was Jody. Big bubbly Aussie character as loud as anything as funny as anything Des would be down in a minute she said I said okay no problem and she went I'm Joe by the way I said oh hi Joe I'm Nick she said oh pleased to meet you Nick and a few minutes later Des came down and we stood on the driveway and he said to me he said have you ever driven a Lexus before and I thought what a strange question and I went I haven't actually no he went Oh, well, we'll take my car tonight then. And I thought, okay. So he got his keys, parked my car up, jumped in his Lexus, and I drove him and Jody to Kensington Palace for ITV garden party. So dropped him off, and I thought, now what am I going to do? I'm stuck in his car. Mm-hmm. And I sat there for about four hours, petrified to go anywhere or park it anywhere in case something happened to it. So I sat there. The phone rang. He said, we're ready now. I said, okay, give me five minutes. I'll come find you. So anyway, went back to where I dropped him off. We got in the car. We drove back to the house. He said, on the way back, 
what have you done tonight? I said, absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And he went, what, nothing? No, I said, no. I said, I was too worried to leave your car parked in the middle of London. <laughs> so, so we had a little laugh about it. And anyway, got back on the driveway and uh, he said to me, he said, uh, your number? I said, yeah. He said, uh, I'll give you a call. I might have something for you. I said, okay. So anyway, following Friday, I stood in uh, Terminal 4 and, and my phone rang. And I looked at it and it was a private number. And I thought, here we go, cold caller, Friday evening, I don't need this. So I've answered the phone, as grumpy as anything, yeah. And it, hi, Nick. I said, yeah. He said, uh, it's Des, Des O'Connor, can you talk? I went, oh, hi, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, yeah, I'm good. He said, uh, are you working? I said, yeah. I said, uh, I'm just a Heathrow at the moment. He said, okay. He said, if, if you can come round, he said, I'd like to see you tonight. I'll have a chat. I think I've got something for you. So I said, okay, no problem. So picked up my client from Heathrow and, and, and drove him home. He lived in Gerald's Cross. So it was only around the corner from Des's. And went around his house, pressed the buzzer um, and said, there's this Nick. He said, come in. So again, the gates opened and I went around the back and parked him. And this time he was waiting outside for me. So got out of the car shook my hand. He said, come in, come in. Uh, can I get you a drink? I said, no, you're okay, thank you. Water, tea? No, 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 I'm fine, thanks. I'm, I'm all good. So anyway, as we went through his kitchen, he took me into like this room that goes down a couple of stairs and then across to the left. It was not mood lighting, but it was lit just perfect. Mm-hmm. And as I walked in, I could see like the spotlights just glistening on things to the left, but I didn't want to kind of look to be nosy <laughs> yes but when i saw him wasn't looking i turned my head and on the left hand side all the way down this room it's like this big bookcase kind of thing full of cds and books and pictures and you know the first picture i clocked was des stood next to sammy davis jr shaking <laughs> hand with obviously prince charles then but you know king charles and and there was pictures Along there, this with his family, there was memorabilia bits on the on the cupboard that had been given to him by other people, and all ac- across the top of this bookcase was gold discs where Des's albums and and everything else had all obviously hit the numbers that you need to make to to make the gold records, and it kind of dawned on me reality was here. I'm here in Des O'Connor's house looking what he's achieved in his life and it was just amazing and there was one piece of memorabilia on his um cabinet which stood out for me which every time i went in that room i always walked up to it and i always looked at it and it was a pair of guitars that rick parfit and um francis rossi from status quo had given to des as a thank you for going on the des o'connor tonight show and I can still picture it now on his cabinet, stuck right in the middle. And I just thought, I can't believe my luck. So as I sat down, Des is like, right, okay, we've cut straight to the chase. How much do you like your job? And I went, yeah, I enjoy it. So he said, I've got something for you. Right, okay. He said, I want you to be my personal assistant. I said, pardon? He said, I want you to be my personal assistant. And I just said, and that includes what? And he said, you, me, everywhere. He said, and I'll pay you. And that was it. We kind of 
discussed a salary. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I can't tell you what the job is going to be. He said, because one minute we could be in London, the next minute we could be in New York. Mm-hmm. And I went, really? And he went, yeah. He said, it's as simple as that. He said, you be my personal assistant. You work with me. You go everywhere with me. So wow. I said, right, okay. And that was that. I came out of his house on the Friday night and I couldn't believe my luck. I'd landed a job that money couldn't buy, yeah. you know? Yes, one of the most significant entertainers in the country. Absolutely. And, and you didn't stop then for, for the 12 years you worked for him. It was a constant, well, it would tread, not a treadmill, but a roller coaster of nonstop show business activity. Because uh, Des didn't stop, did he? So was he, was he a workaholic or did he just love what he did? Um, he, he was the best. He was very down to earth. Um, I'd go to his house at weekends. He'd be in his trackies and a jumper and he'd just be chilling out. And, you know, he never expected anyone to wait on him. He wasn't flash. He didn't have an ego. He really was just a normal guy who had a very, very popular job in the public eye on primetime television that we watched every week, you know, and he, he never, used that in any way he never used his power to get anything that he wanted he he, wherever he went people were just so friendly towards him I never heard anybody in the 12 years that I was with him even say that geezer is a pain in the backside Mm. you know he literally just put, put smiles on everybody's faces and he loved his family his parents were everything you know, there wasn't a week go by when he didn't mention either his mum or dad or whilst he was doing something. And I remember the first time he said it when he bent down to pick his trousers up and he went, and he kind of went, oh, and he went, they're getting further away from me and, and <laughs> laughed. And he went, that's what my dad used to say, you know. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's just nice things like that. And, you know, I remember when we went down to Somerset to do one of his one-man shows and, he said to me, he said, we're just going to take a little diversion and, and gave me this address and said, can you, can we go here? So I said, okay, we pulled up outside the house. It was just a little mid terrace house right on the side of the road. There was no parking. So I had to bump up on the curb, busy main road. And I said, who's here? He said, this is where my sister Pat lives. And he said, I'm just going to surprise her and I hope she's in. And pulled up outside, walked down the path knocked on the door and lucky enough she was in and I spent two hours with her and Des and they just constantly talked and laughed and smiled and he sat there for two hours holding her hand talking to her and it was just surreal you know and it was moments like that when I realized that I would not only was he my boss but a, a friend as well and I could see another side to him that people don't get to see you know mm. yeah and like on a saturday i'll go around his house on a saturday he'd be sitting on the sofa remote control in one hand newspaper in the other and he's got the horse racing on you mm. know i'd call him at 11 and see if he wanted anything i'd go and do most of his shopping for him take it around his house get what he needed walk in let myself in put the food away stick my head around the living room door say hi bye See you later. He'd smile, put his hand up. Sometimes he wouldn't even turn around. But, but you know, that was it. That's how we were. And then, you know, I, I'd just go home, do what i got to do, and then catch up with him on a Monday. Ugh. Incredible experience for you. Absolutely incredible. So um, 
Did you ever get to meet James Kelly, his manager? Well, it's quite funny, really, because James Kelly was, um, he was different. Um, He absolutely had Des's interests at heart in everything that he'd done. And it was kind of funny, really, the first time I met him, because I never knew what this guy was like. I didn't know anything about him. And all of a sudden, my phone rang one day, and it was James, and he spoke so posh that I thought, is this really James Kelly? And, you know, he passed away a a couple of years after I started, after a short illness. He didn't tell Des that he was was unwell. Um, Des kind of found out towards the end. And that was what James was like. He didn't like to trouble Des with any troubles. He was kind of that huge barrier in front of Des. And it was only a case of he only let Des know what he thought he needed to know mm. and let him concentrate on his work, etc. And And I remember not long after James passed away and Des said, we're off on a cruise. We're going to go and do a cruise ship. We're going to go to Bermuda. And then we did down to um, the Caribbean Bahamas and around there, and then we ended up in Florida. And when he said Florida, he started laughing. And I said, Where's the catch for this one? And he said, There's not. I just hope that when we turn up, that there's no padded coat hangers. And I said, Padded coat hangers? And he went, Yeah. He said, Wherever I went, James Kelly would put on the itinerary, this must have padded coat hangers, pink <laughs> ones as well. <laughs> And they said, I always thought he did it for a joke, but he, apparently he didn't. Apparently he said, there's always one paddy coat hanger. So, you know, they were good times and good memories. And when James passed away, I know it really did affect us. They were very, very close. Mm. Yeah. And because uh, James was, of course, the gatekeeper um, who protected uh, Des with great zeal. But after James died, then really... Des's most close confidants were uh, Pat Lakesmith, his publicist, and and you. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Pat kind of, Des always called Pat the mother hen because Mm. she kind of um, took over and, you know, was was Des's um, PR uh, person who looked after press and, you know, things like that. And, And kind of, you know, I think Des still needed that, but he took a lot of the private stuff himself and was doing that for a little while. I think he tried using another couple of agents after that, Um, but I I don't think it kind of worked for him. So he he ended up kind of flowing solo really and and just having people just to do bits for him, but not 100%. So he kind of worked and was his own agent at the same time. So, yeah, he kind of towards the end, he he was looking after a lot of it himself. That underscores really Desi's character because uh, with his family and with his business contacts, he was immensely loyal, wasn't he? Witnessed the long relationship he had with James Kelly and then not really finding a, an agent who could replace who could replace uh, James and then you staying with, with, with Des for, for 12 years. Uh, and that underscores the nature of the man. In, immensely loyal, I think. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. He, you know, when you look at the people that he worked with, like Linda, she was with him 
for, well, I, I don't actually know how long, but it's got to be 25, 30 years plus. Alan Savage. And what's Linda's drummer, job? Remind me what Linda's job Linda, was. Linda, Linda was there as a secretary. Um, she used to look after all of his paperwork and banking and, you know, everything like that. She looked after all the, the fan mail and it just everything that, that basically a secretary would do. Um, and it, But he had other people as well. So there was Alan Savage, who one of the drummer in his band, and he was with him since day one, you know, and Alan was still there after... There's and I finished working together. Alan still stayed on and doing it. Ray Monk, um, Sean Whittle, Mitch Dalton. You know, the, the, these guys are, you know, they they really are people who have been with him a lot longer than I was and stayed with him after. Yes, indeed. I suppose also really what's significant, Neil Shand, of course, was with Des for many, 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 many years. Uh, I suppose once Des wanted to surround himself with, with people he knew, but also who he trusted. And I think that was an important factor in Desi's career, don't you think? Absolutely. Trust is everything. You can't, you know, you can't work with people who you don't trust. And that uh, that's a massive thing with Des. And and he put trust in everyone. And if you didn't break that trust, you were here to stay. Mm. It's as simple as that. And he would work with the same people all the time. I noticed it on like when we did various TV shows and things like that, he would particularly ask for, you know, Alistair McMillan, you know, Mark Wells would always be there. Colin Fay would be there. Yeah, and then Colin. with the, with the Melt and everything, you know, we, when he got himself established a good production team, he kind of asked for those people to come back. And, you know, he knew that if he looked over his shoulder, he had the team behind him that he wanted to follow him. And yes. That worked. That worked everywhere he went. And also, Des always looked a million dollars, didn't he? That was the thing about it. It's all slender, never a hair out of place. He always had that mischievous twinkle in his eye. Um, and of course, he had Ava uh, as his um, constant makeup artist. Um, do you do you think? Did you notice that Des had a particular regime for t- taking care of himself? Yeah, I, I learned a lot from Des over the years when it comes to clothes, appreciate what you have. Um, he was never a, a guy who walked through the door and threw his coat down, kicked his shoes off, left them where they were. You know, he hung his coat up and in his bedroom and in his garage, he's got so many designer suits that are hung up on coat hangers, made to measure. Whenever he went on TV, he always looked sharp and his suit was always pressed. It was hanging nice. His trousers were folded perfect on the hanger. You know, I know when we do TV shows, you've got costume department and you've got makeup department and you've got everybody that does things. But this was very, he had an eye for, um, making sure that everything was where it was supposed to be right down to his suits and his shoes being clean. And, you know, he had Marcia in the wardrobe um, at Teddington who looked after his suits and made sure that they were perfect. You know, even at home with his clothes, they were all hung up looking perfect. And, you know, I remember when 
we first done the Desmond pilot show, um, I met a guy called Alan Clark, who was Des's sound technician for many years on his one-man show. And he used to kind of look after Des, kind of did my role as well as the sound role. Um, and he said to me, let me show you what you need to do. If you can mm -hmm. get this right, everything else is a breeze. So we're in the dressing room. Des is in the studio and he's got his suitcases and we've opened them up and there's all sorts of stuff in there. And he's laid it all out. He's made sure that everything is there. You know, hair dryer needs to be on the left-hand side because he used to hold it in his left hand. You know, things like that. If you can get it right, then it makes it easier. So I learned and took it all on board to make sure that everything I did was right. So Des knew where everything was. So when it came to the show, we would arrive and make sure that everything was okay. I'd hang his suits up, lay the dressing room out. He'd walk in. Perfect. Mm -hmm. He was happy, you know, and I just left him to it. So I'd arrive at his house, take stuff, put it in the car. He always carried a dictaphone. And I never knew why when I first saw him take it. And it's... Went to go out of his house one Saturday afternoon. He went, oh, quick, hang on a minute. I need to get something. Went back in his office, picked up his dictaphone, got back in the car, sat down, ready to go. Didn't ask any questions because when I first started working, I thought, I can't ask. Going down the motorway, all of a sudden he's picked his dictaphone up and he started talking into it. And then he's singing. And he puts it down. And then 10 minutes later, he's picked it back up and he's talking into it again. And... I didn't say anything. And then he'd bring a CD with him and he'd play that in the car and he'd listen to that. And after a while, I realised what he was doing. He's kind of writing songs and putting snippets of things together. And, you know, mm. his brain never stopped. And it was quite, it's quite remarkable, really, for somebody. But when I met him, he was, he was in his 70s. So, you know, he wasn't a spring chicken, as to speak, but... Mm. He kind of had the, the the heart and the head of like a twenty five year old that just wanted to just keep going, and it was quite educational because he he'd go into a rehearsal when we got to the theatre and he would talk to Ray for ten minutes who was his musical director. Um, you know Ray's done lots of things. He was the MD on Stars in the Rise and oh, yeah. Ray you know, he, he's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's done everything. And, and and they used to work together in the afternoon at Des's house on things. And, you know, and it was quite good. You know, Des, Des would say to Ralph, I've got this idea. And Ray would go, okay, no worries. I'll come over on Tuesday or whatever. And they used to sit there for, you know, four or five hours and you have to and just literally put something together. And it was he just didn't stop. And, you know, when we do the show, Des used to come out on stage and, he would ad-lib quite a lot of it. He was the king of ad-lib. He could talk to, you know, anybody in a room and get a laugh. Mm. And that's the kind of guy. I was. And, and he would he, he had icebreakers, which he would come out with, and, you know, he'd introduce the band, and, and he'd always come out and say, this is the best that he could get on eBay, you know. Mm -hmm. But trust me, they were the cream of the crop of the musicians. They'd all performed at the highest levels. And I had the chance to watch the band and theirs on many occasions, and I, I never got bored of it. The one-man show was just for me, the live entertainment and where he was at his best. I just loved watching him perform, and I saw him perform 
around the world. And, you know, I, I can't talk highly. If nobody ever got to saw, uh, get to see Des on stage, yeah. you really, really did miss out, you know? Yeah, you you, ne- you never, ever saw a man more at ease in that environment. In fact, I've, I've just remembered, I remember when Bob Monkhouse followed Des on a Royal Variety performance, he actually said, I want to be laid back on this one. He said, I want to do a Des, because Des walked on last year looking so relaxed, and, and, and Bob envied that ability that Des had. And I want to, I want to talk about, I'll continue this music career, thread that you've started uh because yeah as we've said he was the butt of several jokes um uh, his singing were a standard music hall comedy joke uh but all those gold discs and all you know, 40 lp albums that he made i mean he was a damn good crooner he was a good good he still had the pipes right until the end uh and as you say he was forever writing songs and lyrics with, with, with Ray Monk. Did you get involved in his music career in any way? Yeah, I had the pleasure um, of working with Des on his last album called Inspired. Um, we used to go to Alan Hawkshaw's house in Radley um, to record the lyrics for the tracks. Um, and again, it was, I love music. I've always got music on wherever I am. And to hear that album inspired was, you know, orchestra, live band. It was absolutely fantastic. And I love being there. And Hawk was, he was brilliant. He was so funny. And he had done so much in his music career. He worked with a lot, a lot of artists. If you don't know who Alan Hawkshaw is, Google him and see his biog because you will be absolutely fascinated by what he's done um he wrote the theme tune to grange hill which i didn't know and he also wrote the theme tune to countdown which i didn't know so you know kind of little things like that but again he's got lots of memorabilia in his house and i think he's done stuff for elvis presley barbara streisand Mm. um he's also done things for jay-z the, the mm. rapper artist in America. He'd done a lot of things with him. And, you know, he's a very, very clever and talented man. And he used to be in the studio with a, an engineer called Dick Plant. And we'd go over to his house and Des would put the lyrics to the track and they'd be cutting, pasting, cutting, pasting. And we'd have a really, really good laugh. And I remember one day going there and Des always used to take, I call it his daily medicine. Um, he used to take a, a bag and he'd have a few bits and pieces in there, sitting in there, some lemons and honey, and you know, but he'd have his Jim Beam and Sprite in the bag. Mm. So it'd start off with lemon and honey, and then after a while, that all went out the window, and it was a Jim Beam and Sprite to you know wash it down. So I went out to the car one day to to get something for him, and this lady walked up behind me as I was going back through the door, and I thought, who's that? I can't just let her in because I didn't see who it was. And Hawk's wife come round and she, oh, hi, I come in. And I, it's Alison Moyer. It's Hawk's next door neighbour. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry, didn't know it was you. That's <laughs> it. I'm kind of like, I'm like, here we go. Another moment in my life where I've met somebody and I'm thinking, yeah. this is just not real. So, you know, we went back upstairs and, and, and Des is up there with Hawk and, you know, he's doing his thing. Um, and on the way home, Des said to me, he said, we need to get some pictures for the album cover. He said, what do you think we should do? 
And I said, well, what do you want? He said, I'm not really sure. So I said to him, I said, well, why can't we get some pictures of you when you do the one-man show? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you turn up on a Saturday night when you do the one-man show. I said, you're all suited and booted, dinner suit, bow tie. I said, there's nothing more classier than that. I said, you look at Frank Sinatra in the past. He was always wearing dinner suit, bow tie. I said, this album is a superb album and it's something different. You know, live music, a band, an orchestra. Let's have that kind of image on the front. Mm. And he looked at me and he went, I like that. Let's do it. So I'm pretty sure we went to do a show in Southampton or Gospel or somewhere down there. And I sat in the middle of the audience with my camera and I just took a load of pictures while this was just natural on the stage. And when I put them all on the computer and we sat there, I picked a couple out and he said, that's the one. And just pointed at this picture. That's the one. I want that one. Hmm. So I said, okay. So we went then back up in Leeds doing Countdown. And I was talking to a guy called Ian Ross, um, who was working for the design company. And between Ian and I, we came up with the front cover design. And I got my name in the credits, which Brilliant. I'm very proud of. Um, and, you know, it was, I never expected it. I just said to Des, yeah, there you go. He said, look, send that to Ian. Ian used to ping the pictures back to me. I've still got the emails now on my phone. And I was only looking at them the other day. Um, you know, all the design, what to do, can you change the angle of that? Can you change it? Show Des all the colours and everything. And he said, that's absolutely perfect. And and he, he run with it. And I was like, so surprised that he decided that was the one. And yeah, brilliant. Absolutely. If you haven't seen it, just have a look at the cover of Inspired. And that's what I took. Excellent. Good. You mentioned Countdown a couple of times, which Des hosted. Uh, but also the, the quiz show, of course, that Des hosted. But you... If just ahead of Countdown, um, the show that really made a massive impact on ITV's lunchtime schedules, uh, the show on which you and I first met, was Today with Des and Mel. And it never occurred to me to ask him at the time when I was on the show, uh, I didn't know how to couch it, so I'll ask you now. Having worked for so long on primetime TV, Suddenly, Des O'Connor's hosting a lunchtime show, admittedly live. Um, did he ever express any doubts about making that change from prime time to lunchtime? No, I don't think he ever had doubts, but he had to look at it. And I know his thoughts were that he said, This is something different. This is something I can get my teeth stuck into. He said, this is a slot that we can make our own with a prime time feel in the middle of the afternoon. He mm. said, but I ain't got a clue what to do. And I took him to a meeting with um, Mark Wells and Colin Fay, I think it was, first of all, um, and I dropped him off and I never never went into those meetings. I was kind of always outside and I let Des do something like that. But when he came out, he was kind of completely different mindset to what he was when he went in. 
but he was determined to make it work. And when you saw the caliber of guests that they had, mm. people were queuing up in the end to be on Desimel. And I remember walking into the production office one day and I'd always talk to Charlotte, who was the celebrity booker. She was the, the girl who used to, was the first one when you walked through the door, she was on the left, um, surrounded by stacks and stacks and stacks of material, mm. books, CDs. She'd have a, a whiteboard there and she'd have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And she would have written in the squares, what guest was going to be on what show and then she'd have a whole list down the side of who was in the future to come on and I just looked at it and it was amazing because there was names on that board you know over the the series that we done Dolly Parton, Shania Twain, Bradley Walsh, Joe Pasquale, Jeffro, Meatloaf, Madness, you know Susie Perry was on there yeah, we had Jim Davison, you know Terry Wogan, Cilla Black. The list was endless, and these were household names that you would see on a prime time evening TV show that they had taken to lunchtime. And when they put it together, it, it just worked. And they would sit there in the production meetings, and you could see the names on the board, and and they'd say. You can't have him with him because they'll clash because they've got roughly the same thing. So they jiggle it about like a jigsaw puzzle. And when you watch how it worked and how it put together, it, it really was a, a fantastic mix. And I got to meet a lot of people over those years. And there's one show in particular that will always stand out for me. And it was on Valentine's Day when they had Madness on singing It Must Be Love. Now, Madness are my favourite band. And when I knew they were coming on the show, I was just like a kid in a sweet shop. It was just fantastic. And, and they said to me, why are you so excited? And I went, because they're my favourite. I, I grew up, right, have you got any albums? He said, have you got a CD? Or I said, yeah. I said, I've got everything they've done. He said, right, bring it in. He said, I'll introduce you to them all. We'll get it signed and you can have some pictures taken. And he arranged that for me. And, and, you know, things like that just stood out. Because while I was at work, he knew that that was one of my favourites. And after they'd done the performance on the show, I went back to Des's dressing room. And when I was on my way back there, the door opened behind me and I looked back and it was Mike Barson, who's the pianist from Madness. Mm. And he came and sat down on the piano. Do you remember the piano outside Des's dressing room at Teddington? Mm. Yeah, in the corridor, yeah. Yeah, well, he sat straight down at that piano and he started playing. And as soon as he hit the first few keys, I knew exactly what song he was playing. It was Shut Up. And he started singing it and just looked up at me, smiled, and I just stood there with him and joined in. And both he and I stood there. It was a moment of madness, and literally. <laughs> and I'm stood there singing with this guy. And it's a moment that I'll cherish forever, you know? Yeah. And it's just mad. So, yeah, I've got a bit sidetracked there, Cole. Sorry about that. Um, but getting back to Charlotte, and she used to let me listen to CDs and, and read the biogs that were sent to her. And because once Desi's dressing room was set out, I didn't really have a lot to do during the, the setup for the show because you and Des used to spend most of the time in the dressing room writing. And I would kind of like be hovering if he needed something, he would call me and I'd go and get it or whatever. Mm. So I'd, I'd read a few biogs and I'd do 
you know, whatever. And I remember seeing this biog one day with this this lady on the front cover who's it was absolutely stunning. And I I looked at it and I thought, oh, who's that? So I picked it up and, and I said to, to Charlotte, I said, who's this? I said, is she coming on? And she said, no, I'm not sure at the moment. We've got a bit of a wait. So I said, okay, no problem. That normally meant that there's a bigger star waiting. So <laughs> she would get bumped down the list. So anyway, so there was a CD there as well. So I said to Charlotte, I said, can I have a listen to that? She said, yeah, of course you can. So off I went and I went down to the car, put it in, and it was classical music. And I thought, oh, I didn't expect that, you know, this mm. lovely blonde lady on the front singing classical music. But it kind of got me. And, I, I, and after I listened to it, I listened to it again. And I just thought, this voice is amazing. And... I didn't give it back to Charlotte after. I kept hold of it for that day. And at the end of the day, when Des and I were in the car on the way home, I said, can I just have a couple of minutes of your time if you're not too tired? He said, yeah, sure. I said, have a listen to this. And I put the CD on. And this girl started singing. And this was kind of, he just sat bolt upright. And he went, who's that? And I said, her name's Catherine Jenkins. And he said, Get her on a show. We need her on a show ASAP. And I'm pretty sure, I can't be 100% positive on this, but I'm, I, my memory serves me well. She appeared on BBC Breakfast in the morning, and then she came to us on the lunchtime show, and she sang live for the first time live on TV. Mm. And I kind of think to myself, it's a nice moment because I pulled that CD out and I played it to Des, and he got her on the show and we gave her, I think, her first live show. And it, it was fantastic. And that's the kind of person that he was. He always wanted to give people a break. Yes. It was I never about him. It was always about the guest. And, you know, when you look at the primetime show that he had, the Des O'Connor Tonight, the massive guest that he had through there, but now he had a different platform to have those guests, but also give the springboard to new guests. Yeah. One's mindful of uh, giving Alan Carr his first TV exposure. Yeah, on absolutely. Yeah. yeah and and the thing about Desamel was it was it was pure show business at lunchtime, and it, it, and it really it created a, a mould for new television at this particular, what was a fairly moribund, lunchtime spot and i remember the legendary jim bowen coming onto the show saying hey hey listen oh you've, you've changed my life i can't do nothing during the day i've got to see Des and mel <laughs> and, and most of show business used to break off at lunchtime just to watch the show absolutely and you know when you look back at the very very first series it, it really was a, a test of something that nobody had really done and when you look at the first series compared to the, the last series, you know, we had the producers working there, Bertie Gray, Dickie Stowe, Carl Newton, you know, those guys, they had their own teams working. So you didn't flog the dandy out of the production team. By Friday, they weren't knackered. You know, they had two days to prepare for a show 
and the teams worked hard and the effort that they put into it, you know, it wasn't just Desimil in there. There was a production team as well and everybody made sure that that jigsaw puzzle was, you know, put together and, and it was completed. And when they won that daytime TV award at the Royal Television Society Awards, Des was made up because he kind of, it was his way of looking over his shoulder and saying, I did that. Yeah. You know, I did that. I said it would work. Yes. You know, and and he was right. And, you know, and it's a shame really that it came off of air when it did. Mm. But, you know, there was reasons behind that. I'm going to stay out of the politics of that. But, you know, when you look at it now, that gave the platform for loose women. Mm. It gave the platform for the Paul O'Grady show. And then even Alan Titchmarsh in the afternoon, you know, it kind of opened the door for them to have the same kind of show, but with different guests and different people. And it's very interesting as well, because I think the crew were used to working on primetime shows. You mentioned the great Colin Fay and the director, I Steve McMillan and, uh, so Des surrounded himself with primetime folk, not, with no disrespect to the daytime producers, daytime people, pure entertainment folk. Oh, Charlotte Oates, one of the great casting producers, she was she was the first uh, casting producer on Strictly Come Dancing, if I remember. So you know, you've got top-notch people booking the, booking the show and attracting top-notch names. At a time when Des O'Connor, uh, um, today with Des and Mel, was... Uh, in its infancy, and nobody really knew what the heck it was all about. Um, did you th- do you think the show was originally made for the first couple of years at what I like to refer to as Desi's spiritual home, which is Teddington Studios? He spent all his ITV life there. Then it was bumped to what I still call lovingly London Weekend on the South Bank Television, London Studios, or whatever the hell it's called. What was called. Um, I noticed the difference. I was, I felt there was a bit of a, the, the, today with Desimel was knocked slightly out of kilter by that move. Um, that, but that's my personal uh, feeling. Did, did it affect Des at all? Um, no, I, I don't think it did because, like you say, Teddington was Des's spiritual home. And there's so much history at that place, not just with Des, but with Thames TV in general and a lot of things that they used to make there. And, you know, Benny Hill used to live there and it it really was a a place to be. And I think with Des going to London, I think he was sad because he'd been at Teddington for so long. But again, the professional he was, he just accepted it and off we went to London and and we did it, you know, mm. it, it worked. And I kind of, it, it was quite strange for me at first because Teddington on the first series, they said to me one day, he said, we need to get a flat. And I said, okay, what for? And he said, we're going to stay there the night before we record. So, I said, all right, okay. He said, I'm not getting up at five o'clock in the morning because the plumbing don't start till seven. <laughs> he said, so he said, there's no way I'm getting up that early. 
I didn't get it at first, but then when he explained to me what the plumbing doesn't work till seven, yes. I thought, oh, that's a bit too much information. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it kind of, I hunted around for a few days and I found this lovely apartment. Um, on, it was actually on the site that used to be Richmond Ice Rink. Ah, um, uh, yes, I know. You, you know, just up by the river. Um, and it was only about six minutes drive from the studio. So, one day when we went to meet Mark Wells and Colin Fay at, at Teddington, um, I dropped Des off and I kn- he knew where I, I was going. So off I went, met this guy um, at this apartment, showed us round. Yeah, brilliant. Underground parking, electric fob operated gates. Um, there's 24-7 security. Um, and when I got back home, uh, jumped online, showed Des the, the actual apartment. And he said, yeah, I'm happy with that. And away we go. We took up the lease. Um, it was quite funny, really, because about a week after when we got back, we were going back to Desi's house. And because this flat had a fob um, and Desi's house had a fob, we pulled up outside his house one night and he sat there pressing this fob and the gates wouldn't open. <laughs> so after after about five minutes, he's like, oh, what's going on with this? And he's pressing his button. And I said, got the wrong form <laughs> what and you sat there and let me do it i said yeah so, you know so yeah we, we took this flat and it kind of we had a routine going so i picked this up on a uh, on a sunday um uh, about 10 p.m um uh, and off we'd go to teddington we'd stay there uh, ready for monday um desert always go in his trackies and slippers with his funny hat on um and we'd arrived there one night parked the car got into the lift uh, going up to the apartment and it stopped on ground floor and he was always kind of a bit nervy then when the when the elevator stopped because he wasn't sure who was going to be getting in or you know there he was in in his trackies and he's got his hat on so he'd always look down so nobody could see who he was and as the doors opened this young blonde walked in um, rather intoxicated shall we say <laughs> and uh, and just said hello um, Des looked up and went Hello, you. And she went, Des. It was Amanda Holden. She used to live in the flat above us. Um, and of course, you know, it's only like a 25 second elevator ride. And, you know, they were laughing and joking. And she looked down and noticed Des had his slippers on, um, ribbed him for that for a moment. And off she went. But we'd often see her walking about. She had a couple of dogs that she'd walk around the grounds and whatnot. And, you know, that, that was it. It was nice and friendly. And we'd get up about seven. He'd do his thing. I wouldn't see him till about half eight um, when he made his toast and a cup of tea. He was a brown bread and butter and marmalade man um, with a cup of tea, milky tea. He always used to look at mine and call it old brown Windsor soup. Um, and just used to say to me, how on earth can you drink that? And I'm like, I look at you and say, well, what a milkshake. I would have gone and got one from McDonald's, you know. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it's very funny. And off we go to studios. Um, obviously, you'd be there before we got there um, and they'd go into a production meeting. Hmm. And when we first started going in the studio, I knew Des was popular um, and I, he'd walk through the door and literally the whole mood in the place would lift. You know, th- nobody rolled a red carpet out. It was just when he pulled up and got out of the car, security wave, morning Des, and he'd say, hello to them you know walk through reception you know the, the girls in reception always smiled and waved and you know Ray Gearing was always there to meet Des in the morning and you know Ray originated as you know as a cameraman mm-hmm. on Desert Chrono tonight so he kind of you know Des had known Ray for many years and they were just one big 
happy family, you know? And it's amazing that the people who he worked with and how long he worked with them were still there, even after, you know, all those years. Yes. Ray Gearing, of course, was the was the manager at Thames, wasn't he? He managed Thames Thames Studios at Teddington. But you've kind of beautifully outlined Des's preparation for the week, and also about ten minutes ago, you said that the the production team were always fresh because they they had a they had two or three one show to do each or whatever, and by the end of the week they were still fresh and full full of creative ideas. At the end of the week, I was knackered. I'd done five shows with Des, and I was ab- and, and on with time off working at Des's house um, on interviews, as well. You know, I was cream crackered come a Friday. I was, I was glad to see the back of the damn thing. Quite honestly, I was. But after we'd prep, finally prepped that last Friday night show, uh, once Des walked out of the dressing room onto the studio floor, I'd sat down with Liz, gone through the script again. That was me finished. It was out of my hands. Then it was record the show with Des and Mel. I could relax. But that's at a time when Des couldn't, when he had to be full on in show mode. And so his energy never ceased to amaze me. Um, well, was it his love for show business which drove him on and gave him such energy, do you think? Um. Yeah, he kind of... How can I put it? He loved what he'd done. And being an entertainer was something that he was never, ever, ever going to stop doing. And, you know, five shows a week, 12 hours a day, no matter what you threw at him, he'd do it. Even when we went home, after doing that on a a Thursday, the last pre-record show on a Thursday night, getting home at nine o'clock, you and he writing in his office on a Friday afternoon for five, six, seven hours, still didn't stop him. He'd then go and do a one-man show on a Saturday night, and then Sunday night, we'd be back to the flat again, ready to go again. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. And he was, you know, he just kept going. And I think what he did over the period of that series of Desamel he dragged everyone else along with him because if he didn't flag, nobody else could because you didn't want to be that person to go, I'm really tired because here he is, a guy at 72 years old, outdoing people, uh, you know, a third of his age. And, you know, like you say, when you put the shows together and it it was a relentless grasp, I'm not going to lie, I didn't have too much to do in the production. So kind of that had a different toll on me because I was always on my feet. I was always walking around and there was always something to do or someone to talk to. And when you sat in his dressing room, it got to quarter past 12, half past 12, and Ava's in there doing makeup. You're in there. Liz is in there with a laptop, going through the script, sorting out everything else. Des was like the calmest person in the house. Yes, he was. And, <laughs> Liz and I were stressing. Yeah. Like yeah. you wouldn't believe. And, and I, I remember one day when the laptop went blank and it was like, oh, what do we do? But luckily enough, Liz was a bit of a wizard with that laptop. And after a few buttons clicking here and there, she kind of got it back. And yeah. 
one o'clock, there's a mill down the stairs. Yeah. A way to go, you know? And, and that was how it was. They always, always managed to get there on time. Even on the pre-records. Mm. We never, ever went late on a pre-record. Except this smoke that I'm going to blow in your direction now. You were the public face of Des O'Connor when he and I were hunkered down in the studio, um, fine-tuning interviews and trying to get a spin on some of the items that were part and parcel of the show. You were out and about, and as Des's representative, you, you had a significant role because what Des didn't want was someone, God, have you seen Des O'Connor's assistant? God, he's a pain, isn't he? And 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 I thought it was marvellous that Des trusted you to, to such an extent that he allowed you to get out there, mindful of the fact that you would wave the Des O'Connor flag with such vigour and with such style. So accept that praise, please, from me. Uh, yeah, OK. Um, yeah. A and, but that leads me to say, so much so that Des said, right, I fancy a holiday in Spain, you're coming with me. Yeah, Des... He had a massive, massive fan base. Um, and I kind of got to know a lot of them um, over the years. And I couldn't be this horrible person who just, you know, no, you're not going nowhere near him, you're not talking to him. Mm. Because he's not like that. So if he's not like that, I can't be like that. Mm. Obviously, I had his kind of interests at heart from day one I would always hover like you say I'd always be there you know I don't think there was ever a time where anybody got a little bit narky with him or anybody gave him grief people just wanted to be with him and just have pictures taken and get autographs signed and you know in return he would do that for them and he always said if it wasn't for them I wouldn't be where I am and he had this, this charisma and very, very, very positive outlook on life and people. Mm -hmm. And he treated everybody the same, whether it was the cleaner, the window cleaner mm -hmm. or whatever. He said hello to them and he shook their hand and he met everyone. And I'd stand outside venues, of course, wait for him, be there, even if we went to do um, a, a big posh um function at the Dorchester or something like that, I'd go with him. I'd be in there with him. I wouldn't be sat right next to him, but he said to me one day, he said, it's kind of funny when we're together. He said, I don't need to see you, but I know where you are. Mm -hmm. He said, and, and that for me, he said, is more comfort and reassuring than anything. He said, you can hire a driver, but he'll be outside. He said, but... With you, I know you're here all the time. And when we first went to, to Spain, it was quite funny because I'd never really kind of ventured outside the UK until I met Des. Um, and then he was like, have you got a passport? And I'm like, yeah. He said, okay. He said, uh, we're off to Spain. I said, okay, no problem. Me thinking Spain, I've got this vision, Benidorm, you know, and whatnot. And... I said, where are we going? He said, Marbella. I'm like, oh, okay. Sounds mm -hmm. quite nice. Didn't kind of say anything else. I just did my, my homework and looked and thought, yeah, quite nice. I quite like it down there. So, you know, we spent a lot of time down there. And, you know, we, we travel just as an eye. We'd have some 
uh, quite good nights out down there, shall I say. Um, <laughs> it was good fun. There was lots of alcohol involved sometimes. And other times we would just go to a restaurant. We'd have something to eat, just the two of us. Um, and then we'd go down into the port and find the odd piano bar. Just had lots of friends down there. And, you know, kind of it, it's a place where no matter wherever you go down there, you will always see somebody that you know if you're in that circle. Yes. And, you know, yeah, of course, people recognise Des because of what he is and who he was. But, you know, I mean, other people like they'd be businessmen and, you know, there'd be people from the media and they'd all be down there and everybody welcomed him with open arms. And we had some really, really good times down there. And I remember one night in particular, we'd, we'd all been out um Des had been out with, with some of his friends and there was about eight or nine of them. And we'd ended up going back to this piano bar about half past 11 at night. Um, and there's a guy that used to, to work that work in there called Andy Anderson, um, who was, it, it was a, a fantastic piano player, singer, entertainer, and him and Des were, were like best mates. Um, he was actually best friends with Scylla. They got on really, really well. And we ended up in this bar one night and towards the end of the evening, we came out and I went outside the front of the piano bar and I'm stood there um, just waiting for Des to come out. And I stood there and I could hear somebody calling for help. And I'm looking and I'm the only one there. Hmm. And I thought, where's that coming from? So this help, I turned around and I've looked in the water and all I could see was just the outline of this face above the water and I thought wow he's drowning so I've gone to get the orange ring on the rope and as I've grabbed it and I'm walking back Des has come out and he's like you don't have to jump in we've got a car around the corner <laughs> and I'm like I'm like no come here quick there's there's a man drowning so this is like don't be stupid so I threw the ring in to this guy and he's grabbed hold of it and I've pulled him in, and by that time, a few of the other people that we were with were, were looking over the side. And this guy's got to the ladder, and he's had quite a few drinks, bear in mind, so he's not the safest on his feet. So as he's got halfway up the ladder, I've kind of leant over, and I've grabbed hold of him, and I've pulled him up, up the ladder, and he's got to the top. And I kind of stood there, saved this man from drowning, and he just looked at Des, and he went, oh, you're Des O'Connor, aren't you? And just gave him a massive hug and there's just like yeah but i didn't save your life mate he did and he, he went what are you doing here des and he went put his hand in his pocket and he went oh i was gonna ask for a picture he said but my phone's got wet and it's not working <laughs> and anyway the next morning there'd been a headline in the paper uh, Des saves man from drowning. And there, <laughs> was, there was a whole bit in the in the Sunday paper about Des saving this bloke from drowning. It was very funny. Excellent, good gear. Um, I want to talk briefly about Countdown. Uh, Des did it uh, after Des and Mel took on Countdown. Uh, stuck it for a year. Why was that? Why did he only? Uh, why did he decide to quit Countdown after a year, uh, twelve months? Um. It was, it was different. Um, Des always said that being on Countdown, 
and sitting in that seat and hosting an institutional show was different. He loved it. Don't get me wrong. He loved it because, again, he turned his hand to something else that he'd never done before. He'd gone onto a show which was hosted by Richard Whiteley for many, many, many years. And, you know, when somebody like that leaves a, a show or a radio show, you know, like Sir Terry Wogan, when he passed away and left Radio 2, whoever went into that hot seat the next was always going to be compared to the person who was there before. And I kind of think Des Lynham not probably got a rough end of the stick, but it, he, it was a tough act to follow. Mm. So when he, he left and, and Des come in, it, it was kind of a little bit easier to go into. Mm-hmm. But Countdown is not a show where you sit and make jokes all the way through. You know, Countdown is a game show and it's a serious game show. And Des always said he felt like a duck out of water. The top half was sitting still, but the legs were dying to kick. Mm. And he couldn't because he couldn't change the format of the show. He couldn't do anything. So he kind of, yeah, he, he did it. He enjoyed it. Um, and obviously working with Carol Vorderman was just fantastic. Mm. And, you know, I got to sit next to her every day and have lunch. And, you know, not many people could say they can done that. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it, it was different. We didn't get a flat when we done Countdown. We used to stay in a hotel and we stayed in the Hilton, first of all, for um, the first half. It was very nice. Uh, um, we used to go up there the night before again, stay, get up in the morning, go into the studio. Des would do five shows a day, Colin. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 You know, Des and was two. Countdown was five. And, you know, it was tough. He found it, that fifth show at the end of the day, you know, because he had to concentrate. He's the host. So mm. he had to listen to everything that everybody was saying. He couldn't switch off during that show. He couldn't hand over to a co-host to, you know, do something while he gathered his thoughts. He was there in front of the camera and he used to change every single show for clothing. So he'd do a shave and a shower in the morning. He'd do two shows. He'd then shower, shave, do another show, shower, shave, and do two shows. And it was absolutely bonkers because people who used to watch the shows used to pick up on the continuity. And if they saw something on someone, like say you had a a mark or makeup was not quite, they'd pick it up and email in. You know, mm. oh, you had that yesterday. And it's like, you know, he used to shave and change so many times during the day. It was absolutely bonkers. And then I remember for the second half, we come back after Christmas and we changed um, hotel. And I remember one particular day, it was quite weird because I was in my room and, and this was in his room. And I woke up and I got this feeling it was quite strange and uh, i still can't describe it today and i thought something's not right but i hadn't heard from him he hadn't said nothing to me we hadn't spoken in the morning 
and this is about seven o'clock in the morning. I always had a spare key to his room in case he left his key in his suitcase or he left it in the studio or whatever, because at the end of the day, he was tired. Mm. And that was when my job kicked in to make sure that he got back to his hotel okay. Everything was right for him. I got his dinner. I ordered his dinner. I brought it up to his room, made sure that he was settled for the night, and then I could relax, and then I could go and do my thing. But this particular morning, something didn't feel right. So I decided to ring him. I thought, I've got to ring him because it's not right. And he answered the phone, but I couldn't make out what he was saying. And I thought, I've got to go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, straight down to his room, let myself in, and he was slumped over the toilet like he had collapsed. There was vomit everywhere. And I thought, he's had a stroke. So I've gone and sat down next to him, got him comfortable, made sure he was okay, checked to make sure that he hadn't hit his head or anything like that, or there was no blood or whatever. So anyway, I sat I tried to talk to him, but I couldn't get nothing out of him. He was not where he should be. So I didn't take any risks. I didn't wait any longer. Um, I left my phone in my room, so I couldn't call the ambulance myself. So I picked the phone up, which was just literally above where we were sat on the floor, and dialed reception and said, can you get me an ambulance immediate, please? But don't tell them that it's Des. Please just get them to come to this room. Okay, she said, no problem. So she called the ambulance. They were there in minutes because Leeds Infirmary was just around the corner. So when I hung the phone up, I kind of, you know, Des had just got out of bed. So he was in his underpants and his vest. And I, I put his tracky bottoms on and kind of got him comfortable and respectable for when they turned up. Ambulance came and, and they come into the room and, and I was stood there watching and they, they were kind of assessing him there and then. And they didn't know what had happened either. They checked him over, obviously, like I did, stroke to see if there's any uh, like paralysis on the side of his face or anything, or you know. But nothing. He was he looked normal, but just couldn't talk and couldn't get his words out. So they said, "Look, we need to take him in for you know further checks, etc." I said, "Right, okay. Can I come with you?" She said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So as I was heading down towards reception, there was a guy that used to work a hotel um one of the managers who i got quite friendly with obviously because of des and whatnot it's always nice to have a friendly face to you know to to go to Mm. gave him the car key and said look i'm parked on a meter outside it runs out at eight o'clock can you move the car for me yeah no problem so he moved the car into the car park i got in the ambulance and i went to the hospital with des um when we first went in there they took him straight into a side ward there was you know none of this sitting around waiting, etc. They were very concerned that something was going on and they needed to get to the bottom of it. So they went straight in um, and the doctor came in and he just started talking to Des and he looked at him and he said, it's not a stroke. He said, but I'm not sure what it is. They tried to sit Des up and all he kept doing was swaying Hmm. and leaning forward and then leaning back. And the doctor said, I think I know what it is, but I'm not quite sure. So he said, we're going to stand you up, Des. So anyway, they stood him up and he literally, as he stood up, nearly fell over again. And the doctor said, I know exactly what this is. This is something called labyrinthitis, which is an inner ear infection. 
which mm -hmm. affects your balance. And it had knocked him for six. He said, I can describe it to you. It's just like having seasickness. He said, you spend a week on a cruise ship. He said, you get sea legs. He said, you come back off of that. He said, and everything is all over the place. So I called Jody. I spoke to Linda and I spoke to Pat Lake-Smith and I told them exactly what was going on. Um, he stayed in there for three days um, in the end. And towards the end of the three days, he was kind of coming back to himself. They'd given him some sort of anti-sickness thing like you'd take if you're on a ship. Um, and they just said to him, you just need to rest. And that's what we did. We went home. Um, he stayed at home for a couple of weeks. And ever since then, he never really got rid of that imbalance. Mm. So whenever you saw him, he would always hold on to a mic stand when he was on the stage. He would, if we were stood there talking in the wings or a show or something, he would stand with me because he needed that perspective of mm. something not moving. Yes. The minute something started moving, it threw him off a of balance again. So if he was doing the show, he would stand near the piano and have a hand on the piano mm. or he would do more sitting down. And he kind of, he thought, this is not going away. I'm going to have to learn to work and live with it. And that's what he done. He just got on with it, you know. He adapted to it, yeah. Yeah. Remarkable. I've never heard yeah. that story before. That's that's astonishing. Well, he, he always said that, he said if it wasn't for me having that gut feeling that day, yeah, he said, I dread to think what would have happened. So, you know, it's just kind of strange. When you work very, very closely with somebody, you get that feeling from Instinct. time to time that something is not right. And, yep. and, you know, that particular day, I don't know why. I still can't explain why, but I'm glad I went down there when I did. But the alarm bells rang, absolutely. And I suppose after then, really, Desi's workload um, was starting to reduce. And... I guess that would have been a contributing factor for you after 12 years um, moving on. No, you're joking, aren't you? Um, after Countdown, we got even more busier than we were before. He, um, the, the one-man show was still going, um, and that was brilliant for me. That was the highlight of... Every month for me, when we'd done a one-man show, we could be with a band, we'd go out for something to eat, we'd have a laugh and a joke. But Des got the job in Dreamboats and Petticoats at the mm. Warehouse Theatre um, in London. And I have to say, it was probably one of my favourite times with Des. Again, live music, band, you know, we were there six days a week doing seven shows and it was magical and here we are again he's turned his hand to another job you know and people at first were like you're doing what you're going into dreamboats and petticoats to do and it was like yeah i'm going in and, and he done it and you know he worked alongside some fantastic young people in it sam atwater scott broughton charlotte reeves you know, they all welcomed Des like they've known him for years. And as soon as he got that part and we did the rehearsals and 
we went into that theatre and the, and the curtain went up. He was absolutely fantastic. And I have to say, it was probably the easiest gig I had with him because I didn't have anything to do at all. Once he'd got out of that car at the yeah. Playhouse Theatre, they had their own costume department that used to do his changes. He'd go off the side of the stage on one pit, change his clothes and come back on another side. I had absolutely nothing to do apart from stand there and watch the same show night after night after night. And it was absolutely fantastic. And there was one moment during the run in that show. It was New Year's Eve and we had to do a show at five o'clock in the evening. And you know what? happens in New Year's in London on New Year's Eve. They mm. shut the whole of centre of London down for the fireworks. And of course the Playhouse Theatre is virtually right opposite the eye. Mm. So there was all the signs up, no parking, you can't park this. He said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going home on the train. And he went, what? I said, we're going home on the train. And he went, you're joking. He said, I've been on the train for about 50 years. <laughs> and I went, oh well, here we we go, we're going home on the train. So we went in and done the show at five o'clock. We came out, and as you come out of the theatre, you could turn left to go to the embankment, or you could turn right to go up towards Trafalgar Square and, and uh, Charing Cross Station. And they put a massive like fence, so you couldn't turn left at the stage door. So it was like, oh, well, we've got no choice. So we had to go up towards Charing Cross and get the train from there. And he loved it, absolutely loved it. People recognised him on, on the tube and they were like, there's a corner over there, there's a corner over there. And, 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 you know, with it being New Year's Eve, it was, it was a great atmosphere anyway. And so we got home and he just laughed and he said, well, I never thought that would ever happen. And I said, well, you're never too old to do something. And, you know, it was great. We had a really good time. Lovely. That's lovely. Um, after you left his service... Um, I went to see him in, in Hereford actually when he was touring with Jimmy and I was surprised at his uh, decline I suppose is the word he, he, he was he was a certain age now but he was still he still had the pipes he could still sing but he he was getting to be oh I don't know an older gentleman wasn't he yeah yeah, to be honest with you, you, you've hit the nail right on the head. Um, the word decline. I saw him um, do a show near Dartford, um, and he was fantastic. Great on stage, and doing his one-man show, I saw the band again, and we had good times. And then I didn't see him for a, a, a few years, and I went to see him at Southend when he done the show with Jimmy Tarbuck. And, yeah, it was sad for me because here he was, this guy who had more energy than anybody. Mm. He had the zest for show business to just keep going. And he was quite frail and... You know, but I had to keep saying to myself, we all get old, mm. you know, we yeah. all get old. And I hadn't seen Des for, you know, probably about three years. So, you know, he'd got older and I, I just said I knew the moment was coming. But still, even when we was at Southend and 
you know, Jimmy Tarbert is brilliant on stage. And Des was the same. He knew how to deliver mm. and he knew when to pause. And then at the right moment, he would deliver the punchline and he could still do that when he was talking. The silence in the room, you could yeah. tell he had the audience in his hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the man's a legend that I love him to bits. Absolutely. Um, two years almost to the day of our chat now that, uh, that he died. Uh, how did you get to hear that he died? Um, this was quite painful for me. Um, I saw it when it flashed up on my phone as a news flash. Um, and I was horrified. I couldn't believe it, you know. This was one of those who you thought would live forever. Um, he always lifted the mood in the room. His whole personality could just blow the roof off with laughter. And when he passed away, I felt quite numb. It, it was a sad day for me. Um, I did cry, I'm not going to lie, because yeah. he was a huge influence on me. And someone who I looked up to and was very proud to have known. Um, yeah. I took a call for one of his daughters a couple of days after, um, and she told me how sorry she was that I didn't get the call. But there was lots going on behind the scenes which I'm not going to go into because it's it's personal for, mm. for the family. But when she explained to me what had happened, um, I totally understood. And, you know, it was announced in the media how it was. Um, and, and I've spoken to all of his daughters um, at length since about theirs. And they all thanked me for my time with him. Um, and they all knew how safe he was when he was with me, which is quite nice, really, because to get the recognition, not just from him, but his daughters and, mm. you know, everybody else. So it's quite nice. We still keep in touch now. I speak to Karen in Spain quite a lot. Um, we exchange messages. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they're just, they're just a lovely family who have a lovely family bond that only a dad and his daughter can feel, you know? Yes, for sure. And... And really, you know, with Desi's passing, just to wrap this up now, Nick, I would say to you, we and everybody who's interested in show business would never, ever, will never, ever see his like again. No, absolutely not. Um, he was one of a kind on so many levels. Um, you know, he was a loving father. He adored his family from his mum and dad to his sister and his children. Mm -hmm. They all loved him too. The people that he worked with meant something to him. He spoke to everyone, didn't ignore no one. Mm -hmm. And if people had his approach to life, this world would be a much better place. We lost the legend when he passed away. And I can assure you that there would have been a guard of honour when he arrived upstairs, because our loss is definitely their game. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth. We have been listening to the memorable recollections of Des O'Connor's personal assistant, friend and confidant, Nick Fox. Thank you for being so candid and so honest and, and for your time, Nick. And uh, we both, Nick and I, 
invite everyone to raise a glass of well, what was Desi's favourite drink? Remind me, <laughs> uh, Jim Beam and Sprite. Ah. So let's raise a glass to the everlasting memory of a Stepney working class boy made good, the great and the gifted Mr. Des O'Connor. Thank you, yeah, Nick. Yeah. Thank you, Colin.